0: Good day, everyone. You're listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. I'm your host, March Twisdale, and I produce this show because I believe that fiction has the power to change our hearts and in so doing, our minds and the world. So for the next 20 months, I'm going to be focusing on currently published women authors of fiction because it is just so amazing to see what is happening in the world of publishing right now and the powerful themes that are being brought up in fiction by incredible writers. So I am thrilled by what the next little over a year and a half is going to bring your way. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose airs every Tuesday at 1 p.m. here on 101.9 FM, LP Vashon. And it's also available 24-7, 365 on my podcast page at marchtwisdale.com. However you have arrived today, welcome, and I hope you enjoy my interview with Becca Puglisi. Becca, how are you today?
1: I am doing great. I'm super excited to be here.
0: Yes. Oh, I've been looking forward to this interview, like for way more than just the last few weeks when your books arrived. Didn't we connect like two months ago?
1: (laughs) No. Yeah, it's been a little while.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you are located where?
1: I am in South Florida in Jupiter.
0: I didn't (laughs) know that you were all the way down in Florida. I just had East Coast in my head.
1: Yep. Well, I was here and then our family moved to New York. We lived there for four years and then we moved back two years ago. So that may be why you're thinking East Coast because I've kind of migrated up and down.
0: Right, right, right. So, well, interesting. You moved back to Florida. Do you like it better than New York?
1: You know, I do. Um, all of our families here, um, we moved up there for a business opportunity for my husband, and it was wonderful um, in so many ways. We actually really liked the weather, all the seasons, and mm-hmm. all
2: of that
1: was, was super awesome. Um, we're now, we're on the same street as my sister-in-law, Aww. and my um, my father-in-law lives like five minutes away, so yep. it's, it's really, really, really nice just to yep. have, you know, cousins and aunts and uncles and kind of everybody around for important events and just, just getting together. And um, I love it. I, I'm so, so glad to be
0: back. Oh, all righty. Well, that's, that is awesome. So that's a little bit about you. Um, so everyone, let's see. So Becca Puglisi is going to um, spend the next hour delighting us, whether you are a writer or a reader or just a person curious about human nature. Um, Becca's created this amazing collection of thesauruses, which we're going to get into in a minute. And that probably sounds weird. People are like, wait, a thesaurus is a thesaurus. Well, <laughs> ha <ha-ha>. ha. <laughs> so real quick, why don't you go ahead and ground our audience in, you know, who you are, what you do, above and beyond the family piece, and um, and then we'll dive into your amazing writing.
1: Yes, gladly. Um, I write books with my, my writing partner, Angela Ackerman. Um, for writers about how to improve their storytelling. And each of our books focuses on a different aspect of really description in writing. Uh, We have, you know, a book on emotions, a book on settings, a book on character traits. And that is um, kind of what we do. We have seven books. We have an eighth one coming out this fall. And we have also uh, a subscription-based website called One Step for Writers that contains a lot of the content from our books. It's all kind of hyperlinked and uh, cross-referenced with tools that integrate the information uh, to help writers kind of use it on a more practical level.
0: Ooh, I, wow. Did that, Oh my gosh. Hyperlinks. I do hyperlinks on my website. Did that take you an amazing amount of time to really sort of get all that organized and created?
1: Well, when we started the website, we had only three books out, so it wasn't a huge deal. And now every time we add, we, we publish a book, we add it to the website and, it's not a, a huge deal to to kind of get everything working.
0: Got it. That makes sense. Thank goodness you didn't wait to create oh, the website.
1: No, <laughs> no I know. We've, we've toyed a lot with um, trying to, to do a, a, a box set of, of all the digital versions of our books. Mm-hmm. Just having it in one kind of – and it does give me nightmares just thinking about it because <laughs> that's, that's going to be a lot of work.
0: Well, but you've got the website. So – In a way, anyone who can handle a digital um, uh, product would also have the capacity to just go straight to the website. Is it all, you know, do you need an additional thing?
1: Well, it's, um, we do have people who really like the books because they like having physical copies there, you know, while they're working. And then Mm -hmm. we have people who really like the website because they can have it open on their screen while they're working. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we kind of do have, we have people who obviously. Like both, but mm-hmm. but a lot of people do fall into one
0: camp or the other. Yep, yep. Well, so, I mean, I'm like inside right now behind this soft, mild, relaxed voice of mine. I am jumping up and down and squealing. So, um, <laughs> okay, but I won't do that because it'll hurt everyone's ears. And who knows I could cause a car accident if someone suddenly freaks out because their radio starts screaming at them. So um, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so here's the deal. These, um wow, oh where to start. Alrighty. Let's let's start let's start with sort of the construction concept. So um my what I love about these is that each one has about that thirty-five and you can explain a little bit more in detail about what it is. So so folks out there, um, especially writers, honestly this should be interesting to everyone, but for those of you who are currently writing, um, especially if it's fiction, although I think some of this could totally apply to nonfiction if you are trying to generate feels in your readers. Um, If you think about it, you can go out and get a book. You go to a bookstore and you look at the writing advice section and there'll be all these books and you grab the book and you open it up. It's got 18 chapters and each one of those chapters is sort of about a specific topic. Okay, so What's great about these thesauruses is at the beginning, about 35 to 40 pages, is, uh, you had a word for it, but it's, um, it's where the writing craft is being explained. And then behind that, you have this deep thesaurus, which we're going to get into a little bit later. And so what I thought was really brilliant was that the crafted advice of each book was like 100% relevant to... The, the This wide database of, of of information that can be used, and I like that just just those two things are together, so I have the negative trait thesaurus here, for example, and you 're not going to get anything about um, love or setting or, or you know other topics in here it's it 's very focused. How did you and Angela come up with the idea of of going this? deep, in a way, with each of these sort of subtopics. I mean, how did you guys, what brought about that creative juice that, poof, this happened?
1: Well, we were actually, we started as critique partners. Um, We met on uh, critiquecircle.com. It's an online critique group. It's got like tens of thousands of people who come and share their work and other people critique it. And um, we happened to sign up, you know, at the same time, found each other, loved each other's work. And so we were um, in a critique group there. And I basically started noticing in, in my own work that my, my characters were always um, clenching their fists or shuffling their feet or shrugging. Like, I, I, it was just all these repetitions of those phrases in my writing. It was like I could not figure out how to show that those emotions any other way. So yes. It started to bother me. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so that's how uh, that was the first thing that I noticed. And so um, I started making lists of different emotions and just other ways that what the body is doing when a character is feeling fear or frustration or anxiety or whatever, so that I had other options to pull from. Mm -hmm. And when I went to the critique group and said, you know, I've got these lists, I didn't know if they would be helpful for anybody. And they all said, oh, my gosh, that is I, I totally have a problem with that. I I, yeah. I can't find anything to help and it's, it's a big, huge problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we started kind of working on these lists and, and over time everybody else petered out, but Angela and I were just all about it. And we uh, continued to, to create these lists that we were at that point just using for ourselves. And uh, four years later, she said, you know what, we need, we need to have an online presence. If we're ever going to sell, you know, our books, we've got to have a platform. And so I want to start a blog and, It would be so much easier if we did it together. Let's let's do it together. And I want content that's going to that's going to bring people back almost like a serialized situation.
2: Mm So
1: she said, what if we, you know, we publish those those lists of emotions. We'll just do one each week. We call it an emotion thesaurus. And that way, you know, people like it. They'll keep coming back to see Mm -hmm. to see what's new. And so that is where our first book came from, The Emotions of Soros, and we basically created it out of a need that, that we had in our own writing. It was right. something that we saw that was a problem, and it was a problem for everybody, we, we realized, as we started putting emotions up at the blog, and it kind of went crazy. Everybody who saw them was like, oh my gosh, I, I do this. I have this problem. Thank you so much for creating this resource. When are you going to turn it into a book So that was, you know, where it came from. And that's how each of our books have kind of evolved. When we we finished the Emotion of the Source, we were like, hmm, I wonder, you know, what else uh, people are struggling with. Like, what other things could we write about in this format? Because this format of having these just two-page entry spreads Mm -hmm.
2: um,
1: seems to be really helpful for people where they can just flip through to the one that they want instead of having to read through the whole book. And then, of course, the instructive matter in the front part of the book that explains that particular part of the writing craft, how to, how to write emotions.
0: Right, right. And, you know, instructive well, matter was what, what you, how you view it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, right, right. And so then we started looking at our own writing and we're like, you know what's really hard? Characterization. It's really hard to get characters that are well-rounded, that are mm-hmm. not flat, that are not, you know, you haven't seen them in a million times. So why don't we do um, a book on character traits? And that ended up being a two-volume set. We decided to split it up because there were so many of them, we did one on positive traits, one on negative traits. Mm-hmm. So that's how we we have kind of evolved this series, is just looking at our own writing, what areas of struggle do we have that we believe lots of people struggle with, and creating a resource based on this format that people can use.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, anyone who's ever been—it doesn't matter if it's Facebook or Twitter, or wherever. There's the writing community is really um, an intensely amazing and positive um, community out there. That a lot of people, if you're not writing, you may not have stumbled upon it. But in it, it's it's people can come up and ask for advice and ideas. And so it's funny because one of the things that so often you get people asking questions about. Everything you've thrown into these thesauruses, you know, someone will be like, my character feels, you know, really sad and I can't figure out how to really express it beyond like this way and this way. What do you all do? And then you'll have, you know, 89 posts if it's in Facebook or, you know, (laughs) you know, 300 people who are making comments in Twitter, whatever it is. But, you know, that thing when you go to um, a Facebook group and they have their rules of engagement and one of them will be like, please, before you ask a question could you search for the question? Because it right. may have been asked 97 times over the past three years, you know, and the answers are already there in the historical, right? And they're like, because right. otherwise, if you ask the question, then people are answering it over and over and over ad nauseum because it's such a common question. So you're right. And, and so get this, I don't know, I was sitting there and I, I had, what was I looking at? It was the emotion thesaurus. And I was looking up one of them And it suddenly hit me, I was like, oh, I could just like decide that every time my characters feel this particular emotion, because everyone who's listening out there, you can't see the books, but in the, um, in, as she said, it's a two page spread. So like I'm looking at judgmental right now, which is in the negative trait thesaurus, excuse me. And so on the left, it says judgmental, and then it has definition, similar flaws, possible causes associated behaviors and attitudes, associated thoughts, associated emotions, positive aspects, negative aspects, blah, blah, blah. Again, a couple more, and then you get to the end, and that's covered in two pages. So it's, a, it's really nice. It's not a 10-page chapter on Judgmental. It's just this beautiful two-page right in front of you. And so I was looking at the one in the emotion thesaurus. I thought, oh, every time my character feels that, they're going to only be allowed to do it in that way. And then they'll go to the next one and the next one because there's all these examples of how to show the emotion. And I was like, well, that would really like be a way of forcing me to to expand how my character expresses this emotion instead of, as you say, you know, shrugging their shoulders 5000 times during the book.
1: Great, And that's what's um, really cool about about our books is that we we really encourage people not to just take stuff directly out. And use it, you know, plop it into their manuscript mm-hmm. to use their character. Because that's the temptation, right? You're like, oh, finally, I have other options. I'm going to use this one. But one thing that, that we feel really strongly about is that every character is unique. And if you have done your homework, you will know exactly how your character should respond. Right. They're going to have ticks. They're going to have tells. They're going to have quirks. They're going to have mannerisms. Um, they're going to be more sensitive to certain emotions and certain people and certain situations and that's mm-hmm. going to dictate their responses. And so they're going to have their own really individualized way of responding. And right. so we encourage people to look at the ideas and then um, make them unique to the character. You know, yes. uh, if they have a beard, you know, maybe they've done something with their beard, you know, when they, or they, they, they scratch it or they kind of, you know, rub their knuckles along it or... Mm-hmm. Um, You know, when they're feeling a certain emotion and you can kind of create these tells for the character that are super individualized to who they are and make total sense for them. And that's what we want with with all of the books that we've created, because, I mean, if everybody just, you know, started pulling phrases out, then it's all going to become cliche and it's all going to be somewhat flat because it's not really designed for your exact character.
0: And that's the goal. Well, and I don't think it's about pulling, um, phrases out because when you look at them, it's obvious that they can't just be cut and pasted. They're the, each one of the examples that you guys give is, is really, it's a conceptual suggestion. And so then, so of course I think it like at the beginning, that was the other thought I had. Oh my God, I just, I'm loving these. So I was like, I had that thought. And then I was like, okay, well, wait a minute. Now, of course, you know, like Donald Moss, for example, um, he wrote the book, um, Writing the Breakout Novel, I think is the title. Yep. Uh, and awesome. one of the things he talks, yeah, and he, oh gosh, this book is amazing. And he talks about making your characters monsters. And the mm-hmm. idea of them being monsters is that they have to, you know, a reader is just looking at words on pages, right? And somehow they have to conceptualize a full character off of just liter- literary things. And so right. he's like, like Bella Swan, to use a, a well-known example for everyone out there who hopefully will know who I'm talking about. She falls and trips and she's clumsy constantly. So it's a monster trait that makes it really stick in your mind. So, yes, my next thought was, well, in the first stage of writing, you know, like when you're writing your first draft, you could go through and play with all these. But along the way, some of them are going to feel right to your character and some won't. And I was like, so when you're doing draft number four, you might have honed it down to like these four or five are really what they do typically because that helps to monsterize them to create a word in the moment. So (laughs) what I love is I was like, I I have these notes over here, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is useful in the beginning and in the middle and in the end. I mean, there's just so much accessible wealth just sitting there at your fingertips and so easy to find. Your accessibility is scoring an A+. I'm amazed. Oh,
1: thank you. That was huge for us was just figuring out a format that, that was easy on the eyes and because it's, it's the entry portions, you know, a lot of it is not narrative. It's just lists of phrases and, and Mm -hmm. short, you know, little tidbits of, of what, you know, you might want to include in your story. And so we spent a lot of time figuring out the format of how is this going to be easy for readers to read? It's not obviously meant to be read front to back, like, you know, most books are,
0: but the accessibility
1: Mm -hmm. um, was very, very, very important for us. So I'm glad
0: that's working. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So actually, let's let's jump over. You sent me three. Thank you so much. And did Mm -hmm. we ever find out what happened to the other ones that just didn't show up?
1: I don't know. Somebody's enjoying them somewhere.
0: Oh, yes, they are. Okay. So the urban setting thesaurus, I need to find this. Oh, gosh. So I want to give an example right now. Oh, it's not under C. Is it under E? Empty lot. There we go. Page sixty. Okay, folks. So I'm looking at the urban setting, and I want to. I always like to describe the physicality of the book. So mm-hmm. these books are. Um, you can hear them. Ha. Um, let's see. How big is this? This is a little bit smaller than a magazine in like height and width, as far as like um, its actual size. But it's definitely not um, a paperback. It's uh, bigger than most um, hardbacks. But it's um, it's not. St- too super thick you know by making a little bit larger i think you it just fits in your hand really comfortably and um what is this there's a, how many pages like almost 300 pages in the urban setting thesaurus and um let's see here so at the beginning it goes uh, through this is um in the city stuff so we have empty lot on page 60 i i love setting now i do too yes now so so Writers, we're going to do this little, like, feel free to, like, raise your hand and know that you are not alone um, because so often there is this this incredible challenge when it comes to creating, setting, and, and we'll go with fiction because so many of us, and it just happened to me, I just got my line edits back, <laughs> and my editor's like, oh, and I took out all that stuff about baking, and I'm like, ah! <laughs> ah, okay, I'm gonna back away so I don't break any eardrums. Ah, you know because I mean, for, there's actually this this really huge, deep sort of character reason for why the baking is gonna be sort of relevant to my character, but I just about wanted to fall on the ground, you know, and just writhe in agony. <laughs> Right. Now I'll read it. It's 7,500 words now instead of 10,000 words. And probably I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, totally makes it better. The speed <laughs> right. is much better. But still, I'm like, but the cinnamon rolls. So important. Oh, All the nuts and the fruit. Ah! Okay. <laughs> so, so we as writers, and then there's, of course, and I agree completely, there's that book that, you know, you, you turn the page and the next entire paragraph is because Susan walked in the room and suddenly you're being told the color of the paint on the walls and right. there's a plant over there on that windowsill and da, 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 and I'm like, none of this is relevant at all and I really don't care and you start flipping forward because you want to know whether the demon is going to eat her, right? right. You know, <laughs> a little bit more important than where the potted plant is sitting. So. I, I was looking at this, and I was thinking, okay, yes, yeah, Setting Matters. Um, one of my favorite books is by um, Jack Bickham. Have you read his book on setting? I haven't. Oh. oh. I'm going to look it up. Oh, yeah, Bickham. Oh, my gosh, B-I-C-K-H-A-M. And I was writing him a letter of thank you for oh. his books when I found out that he had already passed away. Oh. It was awful. I had this beautiful two-page handwritten letter just gushing about how he had changed my life, when I found out he had died a few years earlier. Anyways, he's amazing, and he has a book on setting. But, folks, I want to give you an example here because, so I'm looking at page 60 and 61, which is empty lot. It goes, this is um in the urban setting thesaurus. So each item, there's empty lot, there's library, newsroom, penthouse suite, refugee camp, tattoo parlor, bar fast food restaurant, pub, bookstore, I could go on. So, in each of these there it goes by sights, sounds, smells, tastes. I mean, I think people are drooling right now, Becca. Probably at the idea of an entire list of sights, sounds, smells and tastes that could go with an empty lot. I mean, this is the question you always get on Facebook. How do I describe this? And um you know, this- go ahead
1: this is one of my favorite books to write because Angela and I wanted to really get the details right i mean the whole point of this was that sensory details are so important for grounding your reader in the scene and pulling them in further into the story cuz they feel like they can smell those things and they can hear those things it's not just someone telling them about a setting they're 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 in the setting mm-hmm. and so we went we tried to visit as many of the settings as we could we split them up according to kind of okay i can go here and i can go here and you can go there and my kids were like three and four and Mm -hmm. all summer I just took them I mean like we went to the train station we went to the marina we went to all of these different places you know and it was just it was a really fun um kind of an immersive you know activity just going and really looking at okay what am I hearing what what kind of textures are there so this one was I really liked writing this one and I can see On a practical level, um, more than some of the others, how quickly you can see that it's going to be helpful because of all those sensory details.
0: And your children, did you like, that must have been so much fun. Okay, what do you guys see? What do you hear? Because then you're also getting a sense of what, I bet there were things they noticed that you wouldn't have noticed.
1: Um, They were so little that they They were not really into it in in that way. I mean, they were, you know, toddlers at the time. They were just happy to be, you know, out and about. The low point was when I had to go to the liquor store to do that entry. And I, you know, had my kids (laughs) sitting on the floor by the door like, don't don't come in. Don't do anything. You know, I'm just going (laughs) to walk around a little bit. I realized I may have taken it too far at that point.
0: No, no. I mean, you, I mean, you, you, you're just like people who are walking by, looking at my children and looking at me walking. They're like, "Oh, what a exactly. horrible mother!" Exactly right. Yeah. And you're like, "No, oh, I'm not right. here to buy any alcohol." It's research. I swear, it's research. <laughs> hey, that's a great story you get to tell your kids. That's right. Great. Right, I right? actually
1: brought it up just a little while ago, and they don't remember.
0: So, oh, I guess that's good. missed oppor- missed opportunity to remember that. <laughs> okay so i really want to read this really quick you don't mind if i do
1: no not at all
0: okay okay folks so um think for a minute about an empty lot just like what that's the cool thing about um being a reader right it, it, the, that relationship between writers and readers just so readers know we really depend upon the reader a lot right you know i mean they it's Absolutely. their mind that's the camera
1: Right, and if you spell it out too much, you ruin the experience for them. So there's this really fine line, especially with descriptions, um, whether you're talking about settings or a, a character's physical appearance, whatever it is that you're describing. You know, you've got to give just enough information so that they can they can connect the the dots and and create that that visual image in their mind. Because if you give them too much, then it's boring.
0: Like or, you said, you or, end up
1: skimming ahead, trying to like right. okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, or it may go against what they would, you know, if um if think about a YA novel which is going to have, you know, maybe has a female protagonist and there's like a male or female love interest, doesn't matter which one it is, and that love interest is being described um the reader has their own sort of personal sense of who they're attracted to in their own life. That you know, the right. the types of people Uh, I think a lot of people it's personality, but sometimes there can be some visual cues that are more appealing to one person than another. And so if you're a little vague on how you create that love interest character, then the reader gets to place their own internal um, ideas of attraction into that character. And then they enjoy the relationship that the protagonist has more because it matches their own personal thing. So, yeah, great point. You know how authors will, um, and I have no problem with this. I'm not judging it, not being critical. Some authors really enjoy, especially if they are sketch artists as well or painters or whatever, um, they really enjoy actually drawing out what their characters look like. Sure. You know, I mean, like, uh, this didn't happen as much when I was younger because it was the pre-internet world, and so it wasn't available. But now I've noticed that a lot of authors will... either that or they'll find actors who they think look like what their character would look like and they'll throw this up there. I find for myself I have in my own mind sort of a vague concept of what my own characters look like. It's a little sharper than just blurry but I don't want to get nailed down it's right? like an ambiance. How is it for you when you write a character? Do you feel like you see them, like they could sit in the room and talk to you? Or do you feel like they're more of a, of a? how does they work for you?
1: Yeah, I think I've got a pretty clear image of, of what they look like. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, when it comes to, especially to a character's physical appearance, the details of what they look like are like the least important details about them. And that's right. where we always go when we're describing characters. It's the color of the hair, the, the body build, the, you know, their eye color, their, the, uh, their skin tone. I mean, those things, their height, we, those are how like 90% of us describe what our characters look like. Mm-hmm. But none of those things say anything about who the character is. And that's what I would much rather do with any description is to dig a little deeper and to share the details that are going to, yeah, they're going to reveal something about what the character looks like, but they're also going to characterize. Mm-hmm. They're also going to tell about their mood. Or they're also going to tell about um, what their what their feeling is, what their emotional um, situation is in that moment. Foreshadowing. I mean, there's like a ton of things that you can do with just the right details that are going to give your readers a glimpse into what the character looks like. But it's going to create it's going to give them so much more information that's actually important information that's going to pull them in much more than you know telling them what shade of red the character's hair is
0: or like we always like to
1: say to to make your descriptions do double and triple duty you know don't it shouldn't just be about describing what the setting looks like or describing what the character's appearance looks like it should it should also be doing some of those other deeper level themes Right. Um that are gonna be much more meaningful
0: for the reader. Yeah, I, I have this personal rule that um everything that's gonna stay in my novel has to be doing three things. Like if a sentence is in Love my it. novel, it has to be doing three things. I mean that one sentence. Just for, for readers out there who, who who maybe haven't written before, um, and they I mean like literally this sentence is moving the plot forward, describing the setting with a foreshadowing, you know, hint of of whether things good or bad are coming and also reminds us that, you know, the character is clumsy or whatever it is. I mean, it's like right. literally, if it's going to earn its right to be on that page and that reader is going to be asked to read that sentence, that sentence has to be working triple duty.
1: I love it. That's great. Great
0: advice. Yeah. And I got that advice from other people, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, all right, folks. So now you've had a second, like just empty lot, you know, what comes to mind? I mean, in my mind, you know, I've, I've been in empty lots in my life at different times. So I've got sort of a sense of what an empty lot looks like. I actually have like about five different empty lots, one in Thailand and one in Sacramento, California, you know, that come into mind. And um, so now you could just say she met Tommy in an empty lot. Right, you know, and not really say much, but this is the setting description example. So that's what is at the end of each of these two page layouts in the urban setting thesaurus. The last thing almost is the setting description example. Okay, listen to this Dennis hated meeting up in no man's land, the strip of crumbling, heaving asphalt split apart by weeds and time. Once a parking lot, now it was a sometimes dangerous island where the lights from the street didn't quite reach ignored by the cops with a field of wild grass on one side swampy woods on another and the crumbling wall of a demolished grammar school on the third there were plenty of shadowy places to hide and ample ways for a person meeting a friend in the dark to go missing. I just it's like that's a lot different than an empty lot (laughs) and I love it did did you got this from a, a book or did you write this yourself?
1: No, we wrote all of the, the descriptions, the examples ourselves.
0: I was assuming because you hadn't noted where it came from. Real, um, did you have fun doing
1: that? Yeah, we love doing the example portion because you really get to pull together like kind of all the things that you're you're telling other people to do. Um, and it just gives them such a concrete example of how it could work. You know, Right after that setting description example, there's two little subheadings there right. um, where we talk about techniques and devices that were used mm-hmm. and then what the resulting effect was. So mm-hmm. in that particular passage, we used light and shadow. We use metaphor and we use passage of time. Mm-hmm. All of those techniques put together, the resulting effect is that it established a mood and it foreshadows a little bit. I mean, we don't know, you know, this isn't a real story, so we don't know what's going to happen. But it gives you that sense that this is, you know, not going to be a happy ending in this empty lot.
0: Oh, absolutely. So and that's what
1: we've talked that's what we talked so much about in the front matter of this book Mm -hmm. is all the different things that the setting can do. And I think the setting is really overlooked as an important aspect of the story. You know, you've got the people who are are married to the plot and the people who are married to the characters and then setting is kind of like, ah, you know, I'm just going to, it's going to happen, you know, at a carnival or, you know, it's almost like an afterthought,
2: Mm -hmm. but
1: the things that you can accomplish with the setting are just, innumerable. There's so many important things that you can do for your story if you just put a little extra time into planning those settings, choosing them um, more specifically for your character. You know, any setting you can choose that has some kind of an emotional value for them mm-hmm. is going to inherently have more emotion tied to it. Uh, so instead of just picking random settings or ones that you as the author think are really cool, you know, you want right. again... Tailor those, make them specific to your character, and then figure out, like you said, what is the purpose of this passage going to be? It's not just to tell what you know where the story's taking place. That's going to be part of it. But am I trying to foreshadow? Am I establishing mood? Am I hinting at backstory? You mm-hmm. know, what is it so that I can make sure that I accomplish it and really make those 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 details do what they need to do?
0: You know, there's such a there's a very appropriate pushback against. Um, the idea of oodles and oodles of backstory at the beginning of a book. So um, so, so, what we're left with is, oh, darn, people don't want the backstory, but gosh, golly, you know, how am I going to take what is actually relevant about that backstory and provide it to my reader if I'm not allowed to touch on backstory, right? I mean, it's just this really... It's a it's a fine-line dancy thing that the writer has to figure yeah. out how to do. And so I find I just realized this as you were chatting. I was like, oh my gosh. I actually all of the setting in my first two novels, all of it is there because actually the settings going into yeah. Basically, all of the setting is there because it has an authentic role to play in displaying and bringing to the story, actually backstory. Like, um, there's this idea too of having like a token, you know, like there's um, there'll be a certain thing, I, once again, I, I, forgive me if I use the Twilight example because so many people have read it. <laughs> so no, that's
2: great because it's very popular.
0: I just want people to, yeah. So she has a truck and her, her dad, when she moves from Arizona up to Forks, Washington, buys her this truck, this big old red crumbly thing, you know, that makes lots of noise and it doesn't drive very fast. And that truck just constantly comes up, you know, and, it, and it's like a little, little token thing. And so for my character, I, she loves coffee, but she doesn't love coffee just because she lives in the modern day where everyone and their brother loves coffee. She loves coffee because of this deep root it has to the years that she spent with her father before he was killed. And coffee became their way of connecting. And so, right. it's you know, and so when she hits up coffee shops, you know, as she moves around the world and she is because she's feeling that comfort of that, that familiarity and it, it draws her because it reminds her of those good times with her father. So it, anyways, I just I think you're so right that the setting you do not go to a theater in New York and watch a play without every single aspect of the setting in front of you having a reason for being there. Right. They don't throw a a ball or a tape. Yeah.
1: With your coffee example, you know, that you don't even, when it's, when it's conveyed the right way, you don't even have to talk specifically separately about that connection Mm -hmm. because it's going to come up in the context of that coffee shop. And, and, you know, those times that she is, buying her coffee and that Mm -hmm. is again another beautiful thing about the setting is that it does provide those opportunities for you to show those important parts of the backstory um Mm -hmm. things that tie into emotional wounds and traumatic events characterization you can show all of that just by picking the right setting for that scene and that character um and then you don't have to just, you know, have those those separate paragraphs at the beginning of the story that, you know, go into detail about the character's backstory. So much right. of the backstory, you know, is really for the author. It's not for the reader. You have to know all this important stuff that happened to them. But mm-hmm. so little of that is actually going to make its way into the story. And, you know, that's a whole other thing, trying to, you know, figure out, all right, which bits do I include and which bits do I keep out? Mm-hmm. But um, James Scott Bell wrote... Um, a blog post for us where he talks about the importance of only using a strategic backstory in yeah. the opening. And by strategic he means anything that is going to bond the character with the reader. You know, if your backstory is really important because, you know, this happened and you think that it's important for them to know, that's fine. But mm-hmm. if it's not going to be a bonding emotional kind of a, an agent for them, mm-hmm. you do not include it in the beginning of the story. That's that's the only kind of backstory that you should be including in your opening pages
0: right like like my character even though she is an orphan and even though that's a a really traumatic and she's an orphan twice at two separate times you know Mm -hmm. mom dies and then later dad dies and even though it's a huge part it doesn't actually come up in chapter one you know i mean it will at some point and 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 the things in her history backstory should not be there for the sake of backstory But if an aspect of their history is going to be relevant right now, then yes. But that's because it's relevant right now. So in a way, it almost stops being backstory because it's actually current story. Exactly.
1: It's in the context of the current story. And so you don't have those big, huge chunks of, you know, skipping ahead because, you know, there's nothing actually happening right now in the story.
0: Yeah. Okay. So. I've had this book open to page 137 in the Negative Trait Thesaurus. Um, Okay, so let's see. We we talked about emotion and urban setting a little bit. So the Negative Trait Thesaurus has, um, wow, just, it's, oh, writers, 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 writers. Okay, real quick, Becca, can you tell everybody what your website is and how they can find you in the world? Yes,
1: um, it's Writers Helping Writers. So it's uh, writershelpingwriters.net. That's our blog, and there's a bookstore page where um, we have information on all of our books and the different distributors
0: where they can be found. Okay. Writershelpingwriters.net. Net. Net, net, net. Okay. Writers Helping Writers. Yay! Okay. So table of contents here, um, 38 pages of really cool information on how to use all this. I love it. There's... um flawed and human characters who appeal, what is a flaw, uh, the role of flaws, um, villains and their flaws, blah, 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 the difficulties of crafting flawed characters. So once again, folks, the the beginning of each of these lovely thesauruses really is very topic specific. And it's just sort of like a deep dive into this specific um, important skill that you need to have to create Characters and stories that people cannot put down. And then we get into all the things which are alphabetized. I should mention that. So we have abrasive, addictive, antisocial, and apathetic. Those are your A's. Now, one of the things about believable characters, relatable characters, um, stories that have relevancy is that sort of sad but true, the real world issues and traits need to be in these fictional stories for us to really find them believable, I think might be a good way to put it. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, that's, I think, what makes characters relatable is when the reader can see something of themselves in the character. And it doesn't really have to be, um, you know, something that's that's good. A lot of times we do see and connect with, with characters because they are flawed, just like we are, or they struggle with their flaws, just like we struggle with our flaws. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, you know, that was one of the really kind of fun things about writing the Negative Traits Thesaurus was because we were able to look at all of these really awful, you know, characteristics that are common to the human experience Mm -hmm. and to explore them not only from, you know, okay, here's all of the, you know, the terrible, you know, behaviors and attitudes that, a character will have if this is a, a major flaw for them and the kind of thoughts they might have and the causes, you know, where it might have come from. But we also have, um, we explore the positive aspects of it because negative traits have some positive aspects to them. There are some good things that a person who is judgmental will be able to do and excel at that somebody, you know, without that trait may not be so good at. That doesn't mean that the trait itself, you know, is admirable. It's just Remembering that well rounded people are not all either good or bad. They have some good traits, they have some bad traits, but even within those traits, the traits themselves can have weaknesses. You know, a positive trait can have weaknesses. Right. Um, a negative trait can have some strengths that come out of it because of, you know, the character having that trait.
0: I could so, think like um, someone who has a really strong positive trait of forgiveness could take that quote a little bit too far. And, you know, it ends up becoming sort of a negative thing because maybe you're forgiving someone over and over and they start to realize you're not going to ever hold them accountable and then they're just basically playing you. And so now you're a rug that they're walking all over.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's just really good to to keep in mind that dichotomy, you know, in your character that they do have to have that duality of, of good and bad.
0: Right. So like on page 136, you've got the judgmental. And I i mean, I was just flipping through these. But um, I believe I'm not alone in being aware that right now and this may or I don't mm, this may have been exacerbated by what we're seeing as an effect of social media communication on the human uh, society, you know, it's it's a new yep. thing. And sure, people have been judgmental since the beginning of human time, obviously. But there's a whole nother level of of this really, oh, when a person becomes so judgmental that they can judge another person based upon one comment that they make in a Facebook post, and then you just decide to write them off in, in entirety as being a worthless human being, that is a level of judgment that I don't think is healthy, useful, exactly. a little scary. Yeah. So, um, so for example, when I was reading through judgmental, it, you know, um, categorizing people into types or boxes, making snap judgments about others, arrogance, um, assuming that one's beliefs are always right and anyone in opposition is wrong, attempting to push one's belief onto others, and I just it w- I just was like, oh, this is so happening so much, so much, so much
1: of it. Oh, so, yeah, and I do think <sighs> your your um, hypothesis about social media is is dead on because really. You know, the judgmentalness. I think you find it so much more um, common in, in in groups of people who are really surrounded by people who are just like them. You know, mm-hmm. when people are kind of isolated from other kinds of people, from people with other ideas, people from other places, you don't know those other people, and so you you know you fill in the gap in your own knowledge and you very often end up filling them in wrong. Mm-hmm. And so on social media, it's really the same exact thing that's happening on a huge scale. You have all these people who are online and they're very largely surrounded by people who think just like them Right. and everybody has an opinion. And now it's, you know, perfectly acceptable for you to share whatever you happen to be thinking or feeling or, or, you know, on any given topic, whether you really should be sharing that or not. Um, and, you know, we still, you know, as we're in these groups, these these homogeneous groups, we still don't know the other people because we're not really interacting with them. Right. And I think that's why we see this this huge kind of extreme situation with the, the judgmentalness playing out.
0: And we, have, and the irony, as you were saying earlier, that, you know, you have the positive and the negative, or, you know, you can have both sides, is that you, you'll have a person who will just be like, oh, that person said that. So I now decide that they are 100% not worth my time. And then, oh, this person in my echo chamber just sort of said this, which is something I agree with. So now I'm going to just sort of assume that they're probably a generally pretty cool person and everything else about them is pretty cool as well. Meanwhile, that person could, you know, be beating their children, you know, but they said something (laughs) you like in the realm of politics. And someone else said something that you disagree with on, you know, when it comes to, I don't know like how to respond to the pandemic, but meanwhile, they're this incredible, wonderful person you would love if you'd met them in a coffee shop and had time to get to know them. Right.
1: Unfortunately, again, with the ease of the internet and technology and being able to connect with people online, it's so much easier to just to let other people do your thinking for you. And yeah, it's, it's, it is a very interesting situation where there's just so much going on right now. Um, It's just, it's easy to see why, you know, so many people are overwhelmed by everything.
0: So under judgmental, I love your positive aspects on judgmental, because I think this is very, very specific to showing a writer, explaining to a writer how they can use the judgmental attitude of a character in order to move the story forward. Because you mentioned here, most judgmental, so this is under positive aspects, which is listed for each of these negative traits. Um, most judgmental characters aren't afraid to speak up, which can help clear the air if it's needed. This can lead to open discussion and planning to change a difficult situation rather than letting dissatisfaction fester because they believe themselves to be right. They say what they feel, even if it's unpopular or hurtful. Their vigilance for flaws makes them good at analyzing projects and processes where they are adept at spotting issues before they become bigger problems. So you could have this character who works on a on a ferry boat or something, maybe is super judgmental, but is the one who also realizes there's something wrong with the ferry and the boat's going to sink, you know, and he gets in there and and because of his negative trait the engineer gets alerted, and you end up with people not dying. So it seems to me like you did a really good job of, of helping writers not just create these black and white caricatures of he's all bad and she's all good. It, it makes them more rich.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree.
0: Was that a goal?
1: That totally was. Because again, we were looking at looking at traits. Our, our initial goal was, okay, first we need, we need our characters to be realistic. You know, so many times you, you create these characters that you as the author just think are so great. Right. And maybe it's because they have the traits that you admire yourself or traits that are, you know, interesting to you. Like, you know, making your character quirky because, you know, you think that that's fun. But it really doesn't have any basis in, you know, their history or their personality. And so you end up with these characters who don't, they just don't ring true with readers mm-hmm. so that was our first goal with how do we make sure that characters are, are realistic and we do that by having a mixture of positive and negative traits but then we started when we started digging into individual traits we realized you know what even within each trait there's like good and bad there's there's mm-hmm. dark and light and if you could bring that out i mean talk about um really getting into the authenticity and digging deep um yeah. And just really also challenging people's ideas, you know, about uh, some of the, some of the character traits where if you can look at something and say, you know, this is something that I totally don't agree with. It's not um, something that I I like, but this character has it. And I really am drawn to this character. I think about um, the movie as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. With Jack Nicholson. Right. Um, I love his character. He's a horrible, horrible character. Melvin Udall, right? Right. Just, he's, he's judgmental he's he's bigoted he is completely closed off from anybody else he's he's completely egocentric right and so he seems like this person that you should just hate i mean in the very first scene of the movie they introduce him as he's shoving his neighbor's little dog down the garbage chute i mean nobody <laughs> should like this character right but in a very that. short <laughs> in a very short period of time you see the reason that he is this way is because he's completely disconnected from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And immediately you start to feel empathy for him because you recognize that even though he is this way, he doesn't necessarily want to be that way. And he doesn't know how to stop being that way because he's got OCD, like serious level OCD and it's impacting every area of his life. So that I love that example as here's something, you know, some, somebody who has these really unlikable and really unadmirable characteristics, but you feel for him and you you pull for him and you want him to succeed because he's not totally bad you know and once you see where it comes from that's very helpful in in kind of overlooking or looking past and just really hoping that he can change his ways um by the end of the story
0: that no i mean i i i, I have this thing that keeps coming to mind for me is i don't forgive me world of disney but I don't want to create Disney characters, you know, especially, I I didn't, I guess I grew up on Disney because it's all that was really around when my kids were growing up and they're right now 19 and 22. um, I actually completely avoided Disney because of the stereotypes. And I went with Hayao Miyazaki. So, um, I don't know if, if you don't know who he is yet, I'll, I'll clue you in because I think, um, watching Hayao Miyazaki's, um, movies should be on everyone's bucket list. And it's by like, so life affecting in an incredibly positive way for every human of any age, but especially children. So anyway, so I went with that and, and the characters are much more, you know, um, complex. And it's, it's very hard to find like an all bad or an all good character. And so you're right, you know, I mean, every once in a while I'd be like, okay, this a couple years back, I was, I was stuck a little bit. And I was trying to figure out why. And then I realized, oh, I haven't really delved deep into my super bad guy character. And I actually had an opportunity to go and meet my mom while she was in Europe. And I was like, okay, between Airbnb, never renting a car, and like walking everywhere or taking trains, I can actually get to all these different places that are in my novel and that are part of the backstory of my big bad guy. They're not even going to come up in the novel, but they're his backstory. So I went for two weeks and I literally just spent two weeks absorbing, thinking about, and researching my super duper big bad guy. And at the end of that, he was so much more complex and so much more empathetic. Wrong word, but you know what I mean. And um, yeah. just, I was like, yes, he's no longer this Ursula, you know, from that one. Right. Day. I I mean, I, I I hated what they did with Ursula. I'm like, but what? She's just like evil incarnate, like without a reason? Right. <laughs> you <know>? No reason. <laughs> no no reason, just are. bad. Uber bad. Wah! Anyway, so <laughs> every time I have like a bad guy and I haven't, and I haven't figured out how I can actually love and be rooting for my bad guy. I know my bad guy isn't ready yet. That's right. If that makes sense. Yeah,
1: villains hugely important because if your villain isn't sufficiently horrible, first of all, then the stakes are not going to be sufficiently high, mm-hmm. and you're not going to really doubt the the protagonist's ability to to triumph. Right? I mean, if you know, the villain has to be really, really, really bad. I mean, you think about the yes. the alien, you know, in the an Alien franchise, I mean, that's really bad. It bleeds oh, acid and, you yes. know, lays its eggs in your stomach. I mean, who who can survive on a flying tin can, you know, in space trap back with that guy? Right. Um, that
0: girl. But I think it was female. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even right. worse. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the villains are, are, are really important to get right. And, and Angela and I always suggest to people that when, you know, when we're talking about character building, you obviously have to know your, your main character, you should know your protagonist inside and out. And the other person in the character that you, in the story that you really want to know is your villain. I mean, you want to mm-hmm. know, maybe not on the same exact level, but you need to get really, really close with, with your, with your bag buyer girl, because mm-hmm. they are the ones who's going to be blocking the protagonist, and they need to have their own backstory, their own history, reasons why they became the way that they are, because there's always a reason.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so yeah, I could not agree more about and that. And a reason
0: to be blocking. Yes. I mean, you motivation, could probably write... Motivation. Yeah, you could write like a million characters who could live in your world and never bump into that bad guy. So so what is it that draws that bad guy to your protagonist? You know, why do they want to block your protagonist? You know? Yeah, exactly. I am so sad that we're out of time. <laughs> I, I'm so glad I noticed it before we went over too much. But sadly, Becca, I yeah, you know I could do this for another hour easily. I know. It would be awesome. Yay. Oh, so thank you again, Becca Puglisi. I love your last name. Is that Italian?
1: It is Italian.
0: <laughs> I'm not
1: it. Italian. If you could see me and see my my white skin. Like is, is it your husband's skin, name you know, that I married into it? Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. You have a close family and it's a close Italian family. Ha, that's yep. awesome.
1: It is. It's like an Olive Garden commercial.
0: Oh my God. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> so, um, again, writers with an S helping writers. So it's plural on both sides.
1: Yep. writers helping writers dot and our net. subscription site is one stop for writers.com. And again, that has the entry content for all of our sources in one, in one place. And it, we have a, a character builder there to help you create your characters. We have a story mapping tool, just lots wow. of resources that pull information from our books um, mm-hmm. and kind of tie it all together to help you do what you need to do for your story.
0: Please pass on um, my gratitude to Angela for the, the however many summers you have spent wandering <laughs> around the world <laughs> and sitting around smelling things. <laughs> touching things, listening to things and everything else. I mean, this is I hope you guys feel incredibly proud of yourselves. Oh, thank you. We do.
1: I was actually visiting with some family this weekend and um, they were asking me some questions, you know, about how many books we've sold and how many books we have. And and it really is. It's amazing. We we had no idea that that it was going to go anywhere. I mean, we really started just wanting to do a blog, you know, Mm -hmm. and out of that, you know, we've got seven books, almost eight coming up. And it's it's really pretty
0: cool. And so folks, I'm your host, March Twisdale. You've been listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose here on Voice of Ashon, or perhaps you're listening on my website at marchtwisdale.com. And I hope you'll join me next week. Becca, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you.